Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Mi gente, it's your girl Dalis Jasmine, and welcome to Hello Latino. Today's guest is Brian Ovalles, a Black Latino from Washington Heights. He is a Duke graduate with an economics background, and he is all about human development and planetary wellness. His experience with food and technology led him to create Tom, aka the Orange Market. We'll hear more about it at the end of this episode. But what I love about this app is that for us Latinos, food is love. And yet a lot of us are learning how to incorporate healthy and sustainable foods, not only within the cultural dishes, but within our diet in general. We'll talk about how he's doing that through this app. Aside from all the powerful work that Brian is doing with Tom, he also talks about his own story growing up in Washington Heights, his journey with imposter syndrome, and owning his Black Latino identity. Un abrazo a todos. Thanks for tuning in. Elisipen. Well, I'm I'm super excited that you're here. Thank you for coming on and shout out to Z for the introduction. But you're also a fellow Rise On member. So I've had a ton of Rise On members on Hello Latino and it's just super, super cool because I don't know if you know this, but we're actually, um, they're my sponsor. They're, they're partnering with me and we're doing a lot of really cool stuff together and collaborating. So it's like perfect that we have you know, this crossover of members coming on and telling their stories. So glad that you're here. Awesome. Yeah, I love that. I love that. You may have another sponsor on this side as well. So let's keep it oh, going. Yeah. Dale. Is, <laughs> if, if, if this is like something that Ryzen already is, is behind and, and uh, you know, they're good people. So I'm excited for what's to come and, and all the great people that are going to come on and really share and be vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. And it's all about vulnerability. And, and, you know, not to be stereotypical, but I don't meet a lot of Latino men who are open to being so vulnerable. So I think just you being here says a lot about who you are. Um, and I'm just, again, we can dive in and just super excited that you're here. Um, but let's start with the first question. And that's how do you identify and why? So typically, I'm okay when people call me Afro-Latino or obviously Dominican, which is where my family is from. I, when I self-identify, I identify as a Black Latino for a few reasons, mainly because my experience in this country, you know, outside of being in specific metropolitan areas has been very Black as far as, as the, the things that I've gone through and just the, the people and um, that I've been exposed to and the culture that I've seen. And, and um, you know, I think that being a Black Latino and, and just being connected to the movement and the Black diaspora in that way is, is a little bit more uh, connected for me just because of my life experiences. 
That is such a good point. And I'd love to touch on that too. But just to kind of set the scene and set the tone for like your story and your life um, and just, you know, your experiences, let's start from the beginning. And, you know, you said your family's from the Dominican Republic. So do you know much about your family's immigration story? Um, I'd love for you to just kind of go into that for a bit and then we can go and segue into your story. Sure. I mean, the, you know, I've, I've asked several times and, and have downloaded from my grandmother who's, who was the first person who came here, you know, to, to work. Um, my, actually, funny enough, my grandfather moved here first to begin to work and, and kind of send money back to the Dominican Republic. And then my grandmother made the shift over. And then little by little, the, the litter of children started to come through. She had seven ch- <laughs> children. So, oh, I'm a family of seven too. There you go. <laughs> so yeah, big family. And, and my mom eventually came when she was 18 in the early eighties. And, um, mm. you know, that's, that's where I was born and well, I was born in New York city, uh, when she came in and, and yeah, that's pretty much in a nutshell, what, what brought them over was just opportunity and, and, uh, you know, just kind of the community of Dominicans that was, that was already in New York, that was bringing people over, uh, and just created a nest for, for a vibrant community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I was actually talking about this the other day because in immigration, I think it's just so important to point out that a lot of immigrants, if, if they know somebody like in a, in a place, right? Like for example, my family's in San Diego. And if we know people from Honduras coming over here, we're like, Hey, come to San Diego, like come live over here. And that's what like creates that community of Hondureños or Dominicans or Puerto Ricans, whatever the case may be. I think like it, there's always that family member, that friend or somebody, you know, that's like, come over here. Cause like you're going to a country you don't know. Right. So you want to go where there's community. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. It feels like, it feels like, like somebody heard of a, of a, of a really good party. Right. And then we're like, right. Yeah. It's, it's getting hyped up and everybody's like, you gotta, you gotta come to this party. And, and the party was in New York and, you know, all the Dominicans gathered and then there's merengue playing all over Washington Heights, which was previously <laughs> a Jewish community in the, you know, and like obviously transitioned in the late seventies and early eighties into what it is now. Oh, did you grow up in Washington Heights? Yeah. So yeah, I was born, I was born in St. Lucas hospital in, in Harlem. And then we, uh, yeah, my family's from the Heights and, and uh, now is, is a little bit more scattered in the Bronx and and Connecticut even, but mostly most of them are still in Manhattan. And talk about talk about your upbringing. Talk about that experience of growing up in Washington Heights as un dominicano or you know a black dominicano, black Latino. How was that? How was your upbringing? Like, did you feel that first generation experience? Did you not know what that even was yet? Were you just kind of like living life? Like, just talk a little bit more about your upbringing in in Washington Heights for someone like me who doesn't know what that lifestyle is like. Yeah, I feel like like a few of of really my circle of friends who mostly are Dominican from from the Heights. We just we had I think we had a pretty odd experience. Um, you know, not not odd in the in the sense that you know we weren't around other Dominicans, and that was really all it was about. Like we didn't think about ourselves at that stage in any particular way outside of being Dominican. Um, so growing up in that neighborhood, it wasn't like I was felt out of place 
um, what was, you know, and I guess what was interesting was like what, what, like many Dominican moms, I wasn't allowed to go out, right? And I grew up in a single parent household for the most part. Like I had stepfathers along the way, which, which is actually an interesting part of my story. But, you know, I was one of those kids who just didn't go out into the streets much unless I was going to the park to play basketball or play baseball or whatever I was doing. Um, and then I'd have to be home by, by nighttime. And as soon as the sun sets, you're running back home. And um, I grew up between the Bronx and Washington Heights. So like that was part of my upbringing. And then I went to some amazing schools that actually happened to be not just in in Washington Heights and Inwood, which is, is uh, you know, really where I spent the very, very beginning of my my early years, but um, Harlem. So I actually lived in, in Inwood, which is next to Washington Heights, went to, went to school in that area for the first part of my life for elementary school. And then when, when the later part of elementary school hit, I was actually going to school in Harlem and then I was moving into the Bronx. So I was getting exposure to other people. And so it just, that kind of became part of my, my reality. And, and yeah, I, I happened to go to a really small school that we had to test to get into. It was a top public middle school in New York city with a prominent chess program. There was no other extra curricular activity. It was just chess. And I was like, you know, that's what I took on and, and was part of part of our chess team, which won a couple of national championships in our division. Um, what? That's dope. <laughs> and yeah, it was, and like, we went to this school and yeah, the exposure to different cultures and people and, and stuff was, that's when, when I started to come out of that bubble initially. And, you know, my, my chess coaches were like, my chess coach in the fifth grade was the women's world champion from Hungary. Um, Susan Pogar and Maurice Ashley, who was the first black grandmaster was one of the initial, like he was the founder or one of the principal teachers at my school. And it was just like this, you know, interesting upbringing. And like, you know, I loved playing sports and I loved playing basketball and I did that in high school and whatever else, but foundationally um, there were just certain things that my, my path took me through that just gave me an, an odd, type of, of window into the world. Um, and then I would say from there, um, growing up in that area and then eventually moving to the Bronx, the Bronx was a little bit rougher and tougher. And I, I, I eventually hit a point where I felt like this is great. I got into a great high school, one of the top high schools in the country. But I was like, I, it doesn't matter if I, if I go there. I, I need to get out of here because it was just getting New York in the mid 90s and, and, and and uh, early 2000s just felt wild. And so when I heard about boarding school, actually went and applied behind my mom's back, got in, and then she was like, you know, surprised, but you know, I, I, I basically talked to the rest of my family and let them know that I got in. And then we just kind of all talked about it. And eventually I just went to boarding school and got away from the city uh, specifically, you know, just to kind of, um get some more stability you know and like it just it was yeah again my my road was just so it, it felt you know uh, not like a full unique experience but it was 
it was an anomaly, I would say. Oh my God. I have so many questions, <laughs> so many follow-up questions, but I think the first thing that I'm thinking about is, so first of all, how old were you going to boarding school? You're like in high school or were yeah. you like, it was post? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I applied when I was 12 going on 13. Um, and then I got in and, and by the time I was 13 and a half, I was in Massachusetts. Wow. And how, I mean, before I go into all my other follow-up questions, I'm so curious about your experience in boarding school. How is, how is that? And how did it shape you? <laughs> um, I tell people the easiest way to understand it is that, um, academically it was a great decision. It was one of the top, um, so I did a program called the better chance and basically black and Latino students and other people from low economic status get into these schools and, and either you go to a private school or like an Andover or an Exeter or any of those, you know, um, private schools that people know about. Um, mm -hmm. Or we could go to a public school in a top public school and live in a boarding house. And that's the program. That's like the, the second track. And I actually did that track. And so oh, wow. I lived in a very not diverse um, area. And I lived. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, I'm like, is there a lot of Dominicanos over there? Did you not oh, no. kind of stick out? No, no, <laughs> I was I was a brochure kid type of thing. You know, it's like oh, one man. of those one of those situations where, you know, you you are the diversity at the school and like you're kind of under the microscope because um, everybody mm -hmm. knows that you're one of the program kids and you're getting featured in the newspaper when things happen or whatever else. It was kind of uh, academically it was it was a great choice and, and eventually got me to my like my childhood dream school. But, um, you know, uh, socially it was I mean, I, I, it was it was. It definitely prepared me to be able to navigate the world the way that I do now in a way that's very multicultural and very just kind of understanding both sides of the equation when it comes to how people see things, whether it's Republican or Democrat or whether it's black or white or anything in the middle. Um, there was just a lot of navigating identity and and really overcoming, you know, certain situations and, and a lot of uh, introspective analysis as well. And like uh, um, social emotional development that, that I, that I got, that I benefited from, from just being, having gone through that by the time I, I went to college, I was, I just felt much more prepared to, you know, navigate, you know, spaces that are not as diverse as what I grew up with, you know? Wow. Wow. And you, you like realizing that and navigating that at what, 13, you said? 13 yeah, years old? Yeah, 13. Um, Dios mio. <laughs> I was like, man, I experienced this at 17. I'm like, can't imagine you going into this world so early and navigating it so early. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, you know, I had people in my corner and, and guidance and mentors that, that helped along the way um, and reinforced me when things, you know, got got um, messy or, or racially charged or whatever else I went through, um, that there were people to kind of pick me up when things were difficult. And did you go through many situations like that, like that were racially charged? 
Yeah, I mean, culturally, racially, um, socioeconomically, like there, yeah, it was the gauntlet. It was a gauntlet of, uh, of situations. And of course it wasn't everybody, but it was definitely, you know, there, there was something there that I had to navigate in a very daily way, right? It was a very active mm -hmm. part of the, my living experience there. Um, so yes, it was, it happened often and there were, you know, some t tough, tough stories and tough situations and, and moments where, you know, I, I questioned myself and my self-worth and, and, and people challenged my intelligence and I had to kind of make the, it, it felt like being in, having an away game all the time. I don't know if, if, mm. if that mm. resonates with you, but. Yep. I feel it. <laughs> you know, but like. So when, when, when I'm, I'm back home or when I'm with, you know, people who value diversity or, you know, it feels obviously there's a restoration there, but it felt like, you know, there were a lot of voices and people chirping in, in ears and, and a lot of uh, people just kind of questioning your, your intelligence and, and your value to society and whatever else. So just performing in those conditions is just was part of what I navigated like what I'm hearing from your story is like you kind of experience a lot of imposter syndrome without even realizing it, right? You couldn't put a, or maybe you could at the age of 13, put a name to it, but it sounds like that's what you were going through. I, it's funny. Cause I don't even know if it was imposter syndrome. Cause like when people, it's funny. Cause when, when people would in some situations chirp or talk trash or whatever interpretation I have here in the sports metaphor, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to show you. I'm, I'm going to have to come out here and like put the ball in the hoop and take, you know, take shots that you don't think I can hit. Right. Mm, and I so, proved them wrong. Yeah. And playing more with a chip on your shoulder, which is what I feel like I did. Then it feeling yeah. like I didn't uh, belong. I didn't, I felt like I didn't belong for other reasons. And in certain, it, like there were some self worth situations that were, you know, um, connected to language that was used against me. But when it came to intelligence stuff and like success and making it, you know, I feel like having gone through chess and having gone through the things I went through before, I was like just mentally tougher than that. So there were situations mm -hmm. where from a cultural standpoint and like, um, you know, and an emotional standpoint, um, I felt like I didn't have the tools, but from like a mental and performance standpoint and like achievement, I felt like I did. And like, I had to navigate all of that, you know, and kind of understand like, and like you said, like there were moments where I just didn't understand what I, what I was facing. Yeah, no, it, it, it's super interesting. And the reason I bring up imposter syndrome is because recently I, I had this conversation with a group of Latinos who work in the space. Um, a lot of black and brown people were having this big conversation discussion around imposter syndrome. And one of the things that I realized while we were talking about it was, oh my God, do I even know what imposter syndrome is? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and when I started to think about it, I was like, my whole life has felt like imposter syndrome whenever I'd go into spaces that I wasn't comfortable with because I grew up in a low income black and brown community. That's what I knew. And that's what I was comfortable with. And to be more specific, I was really only comfortable around 
Hispanics, around Latinos, right? Because that's exactly the environment that I was raised in my whole entire life. Like the school I went to was 75% Latino. Wow. <laughs> so I'm like black and brown folks, like for me, that's that that was my community growing up. And when I stepped out of that, like I was 14 in high school and I went to a whole different high school, better, better community, more funds, more educational opportunities, similar to you. It was not boarding school at all, but it was definitely something different. And I, I guess like, I didn't know what, what it meant at the time for me, but that's how I always felt. I was like, oh my God, do I even belong here? I don't have the education. I don't have the tools. I don't have the experience. Like all these kids are so smart. And I come from, you know, Southeast San Diego, like what in the world? You know, there was a lot of things that I felt like were working against me. But similar to you, I I got over it by trying to just prove my own thoughts and the people around me prove them wrong and be like, well, I can do it. Like, I'm going to do it. And you just have to work a little 10 times harder. But <laughs> but I was thinking about that in that conversation. Like, I didn't even know what imposter syndrome was because it felt like it's been a part of me for a long time. Like, there's always moments of doubt of, do I belong in this space? But then I try to overcome it by, you know, proving that I am, I do belong in this space. And that's, again, what I feel like you're saying is there are moments where you, not on the mentally, you know, not academically, but there were moments where you were like, questioning your your space there right yeah and then and then just you know you're smart like you know that you have what it takes and so you just like chase after it yeah no that's exactly right and i think it's funny because now that you're saying it, i hadn't thought about it this way before but imposter syndrome from a human level versus from an intellectual level right mm -hmm. and that that idea of of feeling like you said like uh, the sense of belonging or sense of worthiness uh to be in a space can present itself in so many different ways it's not it's not mm -hmm. linear you know and and it's not yeah. all encompassing it can show up in different compartments of of yeah, your life yeah and you, and you're and you're making me think about it from a different way because a lot of folks talk about imposter syndrome in terms of work and like work-wise I I never felt like I didn't belong per se I mean of course spaces on a human level like you were saying like there there are definitely moments where I'm like I'm very different compared to like my coworkers are very different compared to the people that I'm around but like work-wise like getting the work done I know I'm qualified I know I have the skills and and you know et cetera, et cetera. so there was never a moment where I'm like I can't do this but there are moments in the space where it's like on a human level, there is a sense of I don't belong here, mm. but I got the smarts to do it. It's it's so interesting. It's so interesting. But you're making me think about it from a different perspective, too. It's like interesting how everything kind of correlates. But <laughs> yeah, we don't have to go deep, deep into that topic. But I was just like, oh, interesting. You know, imposter syndrome, I think, is just a big topic. But thinking about it from different lens and different perspectives, I think is, is important, too. Yeah, for sure. It's it's like a you, you being out of balance is is not is not limited to one one area, right? And mm -hmm. I think that's what you're hitting on. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah, and and I want to circle back on something because you mentioned at the beginning that you identify as a Black Latino. When did that identity kind of come up for you? When did you start to own own that identity, or when did you start to kind of navigate it, or unpack it, or figure it out? Really. I can I can point to three situations, right? That I think are important for my black 
identity three and a half. All right. The first time was, <laughs> was when I was applying to college. And the first time I even questioned not being just Dominican was me filling out um, my application and my mentor and one of the, like, basically my, one of the most important father figures in my life. Um, you know, he looked at me, he was like, Hey, you, you, I showed him that application and he was like, you may want to check. I know you checked Latino. I know, I know you put Dominican in there, but you may want to check that box. And I looked at it and I was like, are you sure? And then like, mm. he, and then he just kind of like looked at me and just, you know, was waiting. And I had to navigate in that moment, you, you know, who I was. And I was hesitant because that's not how I understood myself. You know, black to me meant mm. something else or something different. And so at that moment, you know, I, obviously I had a couple of situations already, you know, like I mentioned that, that made me kind of have this conversation because of people and, and other people projecting onto me. But for me to navigate that for myself, that was the first time where I was like, I, was, I hesitated and I was like, okay, I trust you. And this was mm. the first time I was like, that was like an act of affirming myself in that way. So that was number one. Number two, um, I would say was uh, one of my social, sorry, my sociology professor um, mm -hmm. who identified as a black Latino and he wrote some amazing position papers on on Latinidad and the role of Latinos in the country and and basically colorism and you know the um, how race will transition because of Latinos in the country and he identified as a black Latino and we would have conversations and he wouldn't use the term Afro Latino and like I was paying attention to him and how he was communicating uh, all of all of the messages to the rest of the class um, and and to me that that started to kind of formulate more my black identity and say, okay, I understand that I am part of a collective black experience, which is part of what he was talking about um, and what he wrote about. So that was number two. And then number three was really a common three, three and a half was, was black lives matter. And, and um, you know, um, the release that I thought I, I, I wrote like a series of poems in about an hour when black when george floyd was murdered and i just mm -hmm. sat there and it just felt like a release and then there like soon thereafter i had an experience where me um i had an encounter with or an experience with um somebody from the community and you know we we broke down some walls and then i came back into into the car after that conversation and I just cried by myself and I, and I thought to myself, I'm not beautiful despite being black. I'm beautiful because I am black. And like for me, that internal dialogue and the affirmation that I felt for myself was very just powerful and, and just, you know, helped me to kind of settle into my, myself fully, you know, cause I mean, right. Again, part of what I talk about in the, in the poems is, is just, uh, you know, all the, all the, the the nuanced things that we go through when when we're out in the world and it just it's very black, and mm -hmm. what my family experiences very you know experiences is very black, and that you know part of the conversation that we need to have as Latinos where twenty four percent 
of Latinos in the, this country have Afro descent. And I was like, yeah, we need to have a conversation, y'all, because we, you know, Black identity in, in the Latino community. There, there's, with the term Afro-Latino, like people, I'm, I'm welcoming this conversation so we can have tough conversations. But with mm -hmm. Afro-Latino, there is a little bit of otherism that happens when I use that term that I think separates um, the experience from this very American Black experience. You know, so that's that's my bit with why I what I've gone through and why I choose to identify the way that I do. Yeah. Oh my God. I want to hear these poems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you do you share your poems? Are you a writer, or was this something kind of like you were inspired to do in the moment? Honestly, there's there's what just part of my experience and and like it's very you know there's a lot that I've gone through over the last decade. Um, sometimes it's the only expression like there is no other expression mm -hmm. you know for how to communicate mm -hmm. the depth of the challenges uh and uh and the things that i've seen and experienced and and have seen other people experience and i'm like okay like there is no other forum there is no other format so yeah, yeah. poetry is is like the tool for it Oh my God. I, I can retweet. Like I can, re I can relate. I love poetry. And sometimes for me, it makes more sense to just write down your feelings in poetry form, because like you said, it's sometimes the only expression. I, I felt that. I felt that. Um, and I, I want to point out something important that you said, something that I think, you know, is worth having a dialogue over, but you said there's, you know, Latinos of African descent have a Black experience here in the United States because one thing that I, I've i seen is that, you know, you, you see somebody on the street and you see the color of their skin, you're going to assume something in your head based off what you know, right? Mm -hmm. And for those who don't know Afro-Latinidad, who don't know that, you know, did you say 42 or 20? What did you say? What, what's the percentage of? 24%. Of 24% of Latinos come from, you know, the, the African diaspora. People don't think about those things. People think about the color of their skin and they judge you based off of it, not knowing what your story is. And that's why I think like for me, I think it's super important to capture these stories that live in our in our community that are often not addressed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I want to thank you for pointing that out. I think it's just so important. Yeah, for sure. I love, I love that. And I, I love the fact that other Latinos are engaging and listening to these stories and he hearing it from different perspectives. And again, it's, I think it's, it's important for other people to understand, but it's a very, very important conversation for the Latino community to have from within. Um, because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of voices are being lost right now. A lot of voices are being lost right now. And there's a lot of uh, bending over to what Latinidad means or you know what multiculturalism means or what blackness means and then you have voices silenced because they they just kind of they're wedged in the middle right and so you know having more spaces where people are having these these dialogues is something that i think needs to be fostered and it's something that that is going to be important for us as a community and as a country um, to understand uh, in this next phase because I, I mean, in so many ways, I feel like Black Latinos, Afro Latinos, you know, we we are in this experience going to help to build bridges. I think, um, and I think that that we have to move collectively 
into a future that um, I think is will be more, it'll be more fruitful when we're all having, when we all understand each other better. Mm, and it all comes back to that is understanding people. And for me, it's like, it's understanding people's stories, right? Because we're all unique in our experiences and we're all unique in identity. And I think just learning and being curious and being open to other people and their own experiences, I think can make us, uh, can just solve a lot of the world's issues, yeah. <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> but I, before we go into our cafecito and cheese mix, I want to learn about what you're doing now and learn about Tom, which we'll talk about in a minute. But before I go into that, I want to ask you something super vulnerable. And, and I, I'm leaving this up to you if you are open to sharing or not. But you mentioned something earlier while you were talking about your story and how you've had, you know, a big unique part of your story has been stepfathers that have come into your life. One of the things that I like pointing out in throughout this, this podcast and when I have people on is pointing out that our identities and our experiences, they're, you know, they're shaped by what we go through. And I think just out of curiosity, and again, you being a man who's on this podcast and being vulnerable and being open and sharing your story, I would love to know about how, you know, having father figures in your life has kind of shaped you and in your experience. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Man, it, it's it's deep for me because my the people, the men who have been in my life have, yeah, part of it I'll talk about with Tom even be, because that's part of the inspiration. But I feel like I've had fractional fathers, right? It's weird, a weird mm. way to think about it from like, I'm looking at it from, uh, you know, there, was just, there were just these points in my life where different male figures stepped in. And then other people have had staying power, right? Like we've we've just we fostered our relationship, and then there were moments where they were there for a second and then gone, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. for me, it was it's really been I've always and I didn't even, I haven't thought about it this way until you just asked me, but I've I've always just taken the best I think from everybody who's stepped in um and just trying to take their learnings and like who they were as people and say you know um like you know this is what this is how they're great you know this is why they're you know this is what i can learn from them as as men right and one of them was really hard working and was always he he had a hustle to him that i that I loved and appreciated. And he was kind of a jokester. And sometimes he felt more like a big brother than a, than a father figure, you know? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And then others, you know, taught me to say, I love you and taught me to say, I'm sorry. Right. And just kind of piecing together what I was going to take into my fatherhood. And now that I'm a, a father to a four-year-old and all is still like the learning and, and diving deeper into what fatherhood means for me as as a black dad, as a Latino dad, like this is, these are the things that, that I'm kind of formulating now and, and just kind of instilling into his future. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what it's been like to have several stepfathers or, or father figures or mentors be, be in this, you know, in my life at different points. 
Yeah, it feels like it feels like they were all giving you like these like puzzle pieces and you were like putting it together and you're kind of just like molding yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like. Yeah, and then realizing wow. that I'm I'm like real still realizing that I'm missing pieces, right? And that I'm still mm. kind of piecing more together and also seeing it as an opportunity to mentor others and and um, you know, you know, share share stories and 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 kind of guide um in whatever way I can. Yeah. Oh, that's powerful. So moving moving into um our our cafecito and cheese I have my cafecito, I've been drinking it. I don't know if you've been drinking it, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what so talking about, you know, your stepfathers, how did that inspire Tom? And talk to us a little bit more about what Tom is and why you created it. Yeah, so Tom stands for the Orange Market, and it is an application that provides meal planning and logistics services for people. So basically um, helping people and families and groups plan and live a healthier, more sustainable lifestyle. And so imagine it just being meal delivery uh, to your doorstep with all of the, the planning uh, to make sure that you are just continuing to improve and you have the guidance and the cultural tools to do it, right? So that you don't feel like, I want to eat healthier as somebody of color. Well, does that mean that I have to just eat tofu and salad? I'm like, no, there, there's, there are all these different- I tried that, it can't happen. <laughs> right, right. And so created, we, had, we created this tool where you can, you know, discover, um, discover food and have it planned and have it delivered and we we were adding an educational layer to help to improve our collective health literacy like right now the health literacy rate in this country is 12 percent, and people of color uh are disproportionately they have chronic disease at disproportionate levels and we just have to close the gap like there's no there's no real time to waste um so yeah um, it started for me, I was actually in East Harlem. Um, and I was at, at the time I was 25 and I was undergoing my own health challenges and, you know, uh, eliminating a lot of stuff from my diet. And I was walking down the street and it was impossible to find something healthy to eat. Uh, and then I, I, I was like, this should be a lot easier. I should be able to just pick up my phone. How do I have all of this technology? and I'm not able mm. to find what I need when I need it. Um, and then what made matters worse is that I walked by the local Burger King and I saw that they were taking EBT benefits. And for those of you who will be listening to this, if you don't know what EBT is, it's government assistance. And at that point I mm. realized that our government dollars were sponsoring chronic disease. I was like, we have fully institutionalized mm -hmm. chronic disease and your tax dollars, dollars are paying for it. And at that moment, I, it was like my, my life really came into focus. And my first stepfather who was, um, you know, he, he passed away from a food induced heart attack at 29 years old. And wow, you know, when, when it comes to, there's so many factors and so many different things that happen um, that that lead to the complicated outcomes that we have with our community. 
of Americans have at least one chronic disease, right? And again, that number skews up if you're a person of color. Uh, and so to have heart disease and to die from a heart attack at 29 years old is, is something that just is preventable. 75% of chronic diseases are preventable or manageable through food and diet alone. So mm-hmm. for me, it's like, how do we, how do we create a platform that makes it easy and fun and delicious to eat well, you know, and make it so right. that people of color and people, low income people can access it. And that sent me down a very, very long journey of discovery and understanding food systems. And so the product that we have today is, and, and the vision that we have today is really, I, I think of, really complete picture of what I feel like needs to change within the food system so that we lower the barriers for the, for the lowest common denominator in our society. So that's why that's, that's really the origin story of, of Tom. And, and right now we are in a, basically a, a, in a stealth mode. So we are live, we're just in, in stealth and we, uh, you know, we are, um, providing services for for a few people here in the in the Bay Area, and you know we will be growing, and you will hear about us soon. Oh my goodness, this is so needed. Let me just tell you, <laughs> I I always think about this too, and I'm glad that you you're creating something that's just. I feel like exactly what I've been thinking about is how can I eat all the foods that I love in the most healthy way possible, you know, and like create the most, you know, I love Honduran food. I'm not going to stop eating Honduran food. And I'm like, no, tofu salad, those things are not for me. There's a way to include it in my diet, but it's not going to be my whole entire diet. Yeah. (laughs) But I think about that all the time. I'm like, culturally, I don't want to lose these recipes, this food that have lived in my family. Right. And so it's like, how do you, how do you do both? How do you eat healthy? And how do you keep these these traditions that for me, you know, like food is, food is love. (laughs) And in my family, food is love. And I think for a lot of Latinos, they can relate, but how do we, you know, keep those recipes alive while still eating healthier? Yeah. You, you, you're hitting it on the head. You know, there's, there are a lot of different factors, but ultimately there's so much emotion and culture and identity tied to the foods that we eat. And mm-hmm. making the transition for so many people is, is difficult. And those that's part of the consideration that we're taking into the technology that we're building um, from an empathetic standpoint, because that's what realistically users want and what users need in order for the transition to really happen and for it to be um, sticky, because it's not, yeah. it's really about lifestyle. And, you know, I, again, I want to, I want to be able to hang out with, you know, my friends and be like, 90 95 and be like hey you guys want to go for a bike ride yeah for sure you know it shouldn't be like That'd be so <laughs> right it's it's just our our perspective and our perception you know around life is is yeah like what what's possible when we're all eating well is is i feel like needs to and is going to transform and honestly this is this is something that i think that once we boost the collective wellness of this country that we're not going to be talking about going to Mars. We're going to be talking about going to, to Saturn. You know, that's that's how powerful mm. I think it is. I was like, you guys want the you guys want the Affordable Care Act to work? 
make sure that we continue to push Tom to where it needs to be because I think this is part, big part of the solution. We're, we're spending way too much money treating disease versus uh, and losing performance even if you want to look at it from an economic standpoint. We need to really mm-hmm. be moving towards, um, you know, just collective creativity and, and just, you know, um, continuing to improve wellness so that we're op- operating at our best mo- cognitive and physical levels. Oh, this is so dope. <laughs> so happy you're doing something like this. I know every Latino listening is going to be like, yes, or anyone listening is just going to be like so into it. But wow, I love it. I love the idea of it. Let us know when it's like out there in the world and when we can download, unless we can download now and we can just like. Yeah, I mean, if, if people want to sign up, they can go to tom-app.com. But for now, you just hit me up and, and you can be early on the wait list because we are we are uh, going to start letting people through the door in this new way pretty soon. So yeah, that's where we're at. Perfect. And just a quick story just to kind of connect it all. But did you did you study something similar to this in school? Or, you know, like, what were you doing before? And I heard that you're in the Bay Area now. Yes, I'm, in, I'm like, Oh, my God, I'm missing the whole story here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm in the Bay right now. I studied economics. And mm. It was, it's interesting because like for me, obviously working on a startup and thinking about, again, looking at it from an, econo- an economic lens and thinking about performance and thinking about the money that we're really spending as a society, I think is is malspent. We should actually be paying people to eat healthy and to live healthier lifestyles, mm-hmm. not paying hospital mm-hmm. bills that, you know, are continuing to fluctuate, especially now with COVID, those hospital bills are getting worse because pe- people are staying in the hospital longer. So it's it's just kind of thinking about my degree and like my core competency and what I, I taught myself to code. And now I run, we, we have a, a nice size team. Um, and I am combining, you know, economics and technology and like basically creating techonomics, right? Like that's, that's basically what a lot of people are just doing. And I've, and I've seen some great People who study economics who just transition into crypto into into different um, technical platforms. And I'm like, yeah, you guys are doing it. Uh, but I think that there's there's uh, yeah, that's how I made my transition and thinking about going back into my community and saying, people, I don't need to be on Wall Street. Actually, I need to be solving this problem. And it's not about. I was like, we need to have more people solving big problems. Um, and yeah mm-hmm. like how do how do we use our skill sets how do we use our tools right you can use it for in a lot of different ways and and i just knew that this is what i was called to do and work on oh man i can hear the passion i can hear the passion in that and i think once you have passion for something like it's going to be unstoppable because people can feel that oh man love it snaps Snaps, snaps. <laughs> Did you, and just one more question, because I'm trying to connect the dots in my head. And I'm like, okay, just in case the audience has this question, did you just move to the Bay or did you, you know, from New York, did you just kind of like decide to go to college in the Bay or just work in the Bay or did you just kind of somehow land in the Bay? How did that, how did that transition happen? No, no. I went to college in North Carolina after, after I graduated high school in Massachusetts. And then I've lived in a few places, but I actually came to the Bay from DC. Uh, and I came in August of 2016. Oh, so you've been everywhere. <laughs> I have. I mean, yes and no, because I, I I meet so many people who've traveled way more than me and have lived in more places. Yeah. And, you know, I just, 
I, I've 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 just been in a lot of situations and tried different things, and you know wherever wherever my journey was taking me, I went. So I, I worked on some yeah. on restaurant technology stuff in in Miami for a bit, and I you know um, lived in DC and and worked out of there. But when I, I came to California for the first time in 2015, and I, and I visited um, Santa Monica, and I was like, whoa. This is like a different country, you know? Mm -hmm. And then when I visited the Bay, the conversations that I was having and the conversation around tech and, and innovation, and I was like, and especially I'm, I'm in the East Bay. So, so yeah, just there was, there were certain elements that I was, I was really attracted to about this place and the conversations that were being had here. And that's what drew me, drew me, um, drew me over. Um, and I felt like it was, it was a good space for, to be the launch pad for this type of startup. Oh, so dope, so dope. Well, I know we're coming to an end to the conversation. I want to just thank you, Brian, for just coming on here and telling us your story. I was like, oh, you can't see my face because we turned off our cameras, but I was just so into it the whole time. I was like, <laughs> wow, like just, just wow. But just let's do one quick thing before our closing. How can people connect with you? I know you told us about how they can connect to your app, but how can they connect with you if they want to just get to know you, be mentored by you, um, any of those things? Honestly, I've been really bullish on Clubhouse. I think if people want to come through. <laughs> That's the place to be. <laughs> I, I know. I just, for so many reasons from, um, you know, um, like a new platform standpoint and what I think it's going to mean for a shift in technology i think this is a uh, it's, it's a great platform and mm -hmm. i think it's a good place for us to continue to have conversations so if you guys want to hit me up uh brian.ovayas at clubhouse um i mean you can you can follow us on ig you can go to the orange market on ig as well um and you know i think uh i've been pretty mute on a lot of these platforms but clubhouse i think is going to be the coming out party and um <laughs> and you know it really and, is a place to be if y'all are not i know it's only for like uh iphones too so i know there's like a certain part of the world that isn't on there but i it's the place to be like, that's kind of scary on there. that to me is a little bit scary that no it's right? only ios I, right now and it's this is this um you know i mean i would hope that just the conversations continue to stay strong and great and that people really find the topics that they need and that they want to have discussions about um, amidst mm -hmm. the growth, right? Um, if they can manage that, I think they're going to yeah. be in great shape. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's, I can have an entire half hour conversation about this this space, <laughs> about what I think is going to happen with this space. And, but yeah, I, th I think that's yeah, quite a I've, I've been obsessed with it, honestly obsessed. So I get it. I get it. I've been on there. The the imposter syndrome conversation I was telling you about, it was on Clubhouse. Okay. <laughs> it was just like a group of people we were all talking about it. And it's just, it's so nice because you also don't have to get ready. Yeah. yeah. Anyways. Anyways, so many amazing things about this app, but let's do our brindis, our closing. And I know we got cafecito and I don't know if you know this, but I rebranded on Hello Latino and it's all with cafecito. So we do our brindis a different way, okay. but <laughs> let's, let's close with a virtual cheers. And what I want to do here is just have, give you an opportunity um, to manifest some good for our, our community. Um, so what do you want to cheers to and what do you want to manifest for us? 
I think I want to cheers to growth and to collective wellness and to um, a future where um, we are continuing to become the best versions of ourselves and and continue to foster community and understand the beauty in our diversity, if I'm talking to the Latino community specifically. Um, and I think I know that with immigration and with a lot of the things that we're dealing with, that we have we ha we have you know some ways to go but that i think that we're going to get there together so you know let's just continue to build bridges and and um you know continue to fight for a future that that our you know children and our community is going to inherit mm -hmm. Cheers to that. And I want to add one more cheers. Cheers to the orange market to Tom. <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be a big one. I already feel it. I feel the passion. I feel I just feel it hitting so hard and hitting so home with everybody. So cheers to that. Salud. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was great. And um, yeah, can't wait to to uh, see this podcast grow and and you know just for more voices to be heard mm. we're gonna manifest that too more voices more stories more stories <laughs> yeah more stories and more that you know more diverse stories. more stories yes what a conversation what an app what a man shout out to brian for sharing his story so openly and for creating something for la comunidad and shout out to you for being a real one and listening to hello latino for more information on Tom, visit tom-app.com. And for more info on Brian's Cafe 15 in Oakland, visit Cafe 15 Oakland on IG. Also connect with Brian Ovias on all social media channels, Instagram, Twitter, Clubhouse, and LinkedIn. And see y'all next week for more Cafecito and Chisme, more Hello Latino love. Connect with me on Instagram at ojasmine04as, Twitter at Jasmine, and find me on LinkedIn. Check out my website too, odalisjasmine.com. Con mucho amor, familia hondureña. And stick around to hear from my sponsor and partner, Chris Gates, co-founder of Rizon. Mi gente, what's up? This is Chris Gates. I had the pleasure of being Odalis' guest in the Cuba Through My Eyes episode of this amazing podcast. Today, I want to invite you to a free month's membership to my startup, Rizon. Founded by two first-gen Latinos, Rizon is like taking a Zumba class for your mental and emotional health. Our mission is to build humans from the inside out, and we help first-gen folks just like you to grow and to heal. So whether you're struggling with life's challenges or just thirsty for a community to help you grow, Rizon is for you. Every week, we create a space for mindful introspection in community. That's what you get when you mix mindfulness, journaling, coaching, and vulnerable conversations. It's a space to be seen authentically, to develop self-awareness and build inner skills alongside a group of inspiring peers. Our goal is to help you to tap into your own power consistently, to find perspective, clarity, and direction anytime you need it. 
Over the past two years, we've designed hundreds of experiences for our clients to do just this. These are entrepreneurs and young professionals who trace their roots to some 20 countries. Folks who, despite being brilliantly talented and looking like they got it all together from the outside, are working through some real life challenges. So join us. We'd like to invite every listener of this podcast to experience a Rise On membership for free for an entire month. That includes our weekly Rise On sessions, live and online, plus on-demand mindfulness content and daily community support. To activate your free month Rise On membership, visit www.riseon.life. That's R-I-S-O-N dot L-I-F-E. Riseon.life. Mi gente, let's rise on.